0: Welcome to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. Great to have you with us to kick off 2024. And you won't be disappointed. I mean, look what the new year is going to bring. I mean, we're still debating what interest rates are doing. I'll talk with Mike Levy about that. What gold's doing. I'll talk with Victor Adair about that. We've got Lance Roberts, Chief Investment Strategist of RIA Advisors. We're going to be talking about a lot of stuff. One of the interesting things he's going to touch on is, hey, don't hold your breath for de-dollarization. Ain't going to happen in the short term. He talks about this huge discrepancy between those people in the market, very small percentage, and those without. Uh, That's in the US though, in Canada, very different. Why? Because we're all members of the Canada Pension Plan. We like the stock market and bond markets to do well. As I say, so much coming your way, plus a goofy award, uh, a shocking stat, truly shocking. Do You know how much people who run some, not all, please, some charities are making? Well, it shocked me, I bet it will too. Uh, you too. But first, on this date, it's January 6th, 1946, 78 years ago, where the anniversary of German Lutheran pastor, Martin Niemöller, he warned Germans about staying silent in the face of Nazis' rise to power or the restrictions on freedom, uh, the purges of their chosen targets. He said, first they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. They came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. You know, I'm thinking about that in the face of what we've just seen and the drama surrounding what's been going on at Harvard University. It's blatant anti-Semitism, which 34 student groups, remember this, They declared within 24 hours of the surprise terrorist attack by Hamas, before a single bomb or rocket was fired at Gaza, they declared Israel was 100% to blame for the rape, the atrocities, murder. And it finally got the attention of some Harvard alumni, faculty, and donors, as did the now infamous testimony of the president of Harvard, MIT, University of Pennsylvania. Further put the focus on university. A lot of people started asking, what the heck is going on there? While others who've been paying attention to the increasing censorship, the cancel culture for those who don't adhere absolutely to the diversity, equality, inclusion doctrine or the cancellation of speakers like Condoleezza Rice, uh, the departure from merit-based hiring, well, merit-based anything, including admission standards are going, what have you been looking at? In short, We've been seeing a complete repudiation of any program or policy that can create unequal outcomes as opposed to equal opportunity. No, in favor of race-based criteria, an ideology that divides society in two groups, the oppressed and the oppressors, which are made up of Jews, all white people, Asians. Now, I want to acknowledge that I can't do justice to these so-called culture wars in a few minutes. It's a complex subject, rife with emotion. My goodness, it's dripping with emotion. But I do wonder what took so long for many to acknowledge the massive change that entails, where capitalism is rejected, along with merit, where diversity of thought is outright rejected in favor of approved speech. I would have thought that Harvard being ranked dead last out of 250 universities when it came to student free speech and open inquiry, well, I would have thought that would have raised a lot more questions than it did. It took the vicious massacre of women, seniors, children to finally get people to question, especially after the testimony of Harvard President Claudine Gay, who clearly had two sets of rules when it came to the rights of Jewish students to a safe learning environment compared to other minority groups. I mean, it's absurd to think that she would equivocate if the target were gay or black students instead of Jewish ones. And now, yes, she's resigned amid 50 charges of academic fraud, plagiarism, passing off someone else's work as their own. But here's one of the most interesting aspects, how quickly that's been politicized. Uh, Maybe not surprising, defenders like New York Times editorial board member Mara Gay dismisses the charges that have led to Claudine Gay's resignation, dismisses the plagiarism as racist, an attack on academic freedom. Are you kidding? In the new diversity, equality, inclusion ideology, I guess plagiarism is now called academic freedom? Freedom to copy someone else's work? with no attribution you know harvard's become the very public microcosm of the so-called work agenda a woke agenda it'll be interesting to see though if it's indeed a wake up call for those who don't agree who don't accept the overriding context of race for just about everything who don't accept that merit is no longer the basis for advancement who reject that the cancel culture and attacks on free speech I mean, the constant accusations of racism, which have been effective in squelching opposition to the DEI agenda in the media and education, while well, at the same time, they further divide the country. Will those who disagree with this agenda speak up? I mean, few have, but not that many. You've seen a lot of people in academia now admitting they remain silent for fear of retribution. Was it simply not worth the grief to come forward? I'm wondering if that changed. Maybe the recognition of what's gone on at Harvard and other major academic institutions, or the escalation of anti Semitic protests, the vast list of examples of people losing their job, vilified and attacked for simply having a point of view that's different. Maybe that will finally encourage more people to stand up. After all, as we were warned by Pastor Neumuller, we all could be next. Hey, how about a little good news to start the new year? You know, through the months of December, we had the gold coin giveaway, the one-ounce maple leaf, thanks to our friends at Border Gold who provided it for us. What a great prize, by the way. But we had our draw. Everyone who bought a ticket in December for the World Outlook Conference got into the draw. We do have a winner. We made somebody's day, at least. Todd J. from Langley, B.C. He'll see him at the World Outlook Conference. But in the meantime, he's got a brand-new Gold, one-ounce maple leaf from the Canadian Mint, thanks to the people at Border Gold. forward to getting a chance to chat with Lance Roberts. He is the Chief Investment Strategist, RIA Advisors. Lance, Happy New Year. Thanks for taking time with us.
1: Absolutely. Happy New Year to you too.
0: I mean... I was just saying this week that all of the old stories from last year are still the stories for this year. Not a surprise. I mean, a couple of weeks doesn't make any difference. But can you make any forecasts at all without first starting with what you think the Federal Reserve is going to do in the U.S.? And in Canada's case, obviously, we have the central bank here, too.
1: No, no. I mean, really, this whole market, um, you know, for the last several years, has not been really a function of anything other than Fed policy. It's certainly not traded on valuations, certainly hasn't traded on fundamentals by any real stretch of the imagination. Um, it's all been a function of what's the Fed going to do? Are they going to cut rates? Is it more monetary accommodation? And this whole rally that we saw from the end of October, uh, where the Federal Reserve made their famous you know, pivot statement, um, to a more, you know, to, to not hiking rates anymore, potentially even cutting rates, uh, that led to a fifteen percent rally in the markets, and that had nothing to do with fundamental growth. Uh, it was strictly a, a valuation expansion. In other words, we just increased multiples in the S and P for that rally. So, yeah, it, it's all been Fed narrative and corporate share buybacks. Uh, and let's
0: keep going with that story. In that the market says, "What we're going to get five, six uh, rate cuts." You know, in the U.S. and the Fed, yeah. at least at their most optimistic, it seemed like three rate cuts. And now and they continue to say, well, at least a lot of the Fed uh, presidents were scrambling after uh, Jerome Powell jumped in there and say, wait a second. It's not going to be that easy. Uh, but so they're they're double what the Fed would say in their dot yeah. plots.
1: Well, not only that, um, but even the FOMC minutes that came out uh, yesterday uh, as, or, or Wednesday of uh, this past week, um, even those minutes were not nearly as dovish as the common the conversation we've been getting from Jerome Powell so you know this idea that the market's going to get six rate cuts this year is probably not realistic I mean unless and, and there is a case here to be made that maybe the fed is talking this game because there's a fundamental stress in the markets that we're not aware of just yet, at least the, the overall market. And you know, I was talking with Michael Leibwitz uh, just yesterday about this very same thing. Is that if you go back to 2019, and, and, and so let's let's go back in the way way back machine, all the way back to 2018 for just a second, because um, there's a very interesting similarity of something that may be going on. So if we remember in September of 2018, the Fed was hiking rates, and in September of 2018, this is when President Trump was in office. Um, the the Federal Reserve said we are nowhere near the neutral rate. In other words, the Fed was saying we need to hike rates more because of inflationary pressures in the economy. Well, at that point, the market sold off twenty percent between September and December yeah. of twenty eighteen, yeah. and, and and this was where Donald Trump basically made overtones in the overall market that said, well, maybe I need to get rid of Mr. Powell because he's not playing the game. I'm not. Uh, I'm paraphrasing, <laughs> but. You know, he was wanting. You know, President Trump wanted rate cuts at that point to support economic growth and support the markets because that leads to consumer confidence. Well, um, lo and behold, by December, Jerome Powell says, "Ah, yeah, now they hadn't raised rates, hadn't done anything since September, but but uh, by December, it's like, oh yeah, we're at the neutral rate, we're good, we don't need to hike rates anymore." So a complete one eighty, the market takes off running. Okay, so that's a little bit of what's been going on now. In June. The Fed starts cutting interest rates, but there was nothing wrong in the economy. The economy was fine, markets are doing fine. Why was the Fed cutting rates? It didn't really make sense. And then in September, the Fed starts doing this massive repo bailout, the, the, this uh, Fed repurchase operation uh, that was going on. It was a trillion dollars. Everybody's like, why are you doing all this repo? Now, we didn't know anything at the time uh, that was going on. But there was stress in the financial system. Turns out later we were bailing out hedge funds like Citadel. But there was, there was clear stress in the financial markets. And that was that fracture that we saw heading into 2020. And that's when we started talking about. We had an inverted yield curve. We were talking about the potential for a recession. The economy was set for a recession. And then we shut down the economy and caused the recession in, 20, in 2020. So here we are today. Um, very similar situation. The Fed all of a sudden has made this pivot from higher for longer to, oh, we need to cut rates. Everything's fine economically. So why would you want to cut rates here and risk having an inflation surge mm-hmm. by having lower rates? But if we take a look at repo, repo has been spiking. The cost of overnight loans are up over 6% now. And that's something that we haven't seen since 2019 there has been this very sharp tick up. And what's happening in the overnight repo market. So maybe there's a a financial uh, fracture that is starting because of higher interest rates. The Fed sees this and they're trying to get ahead of it. That's my only explanation. It's all a wild guess at this point. But that's the only thing I can see out there as to why the Fed has made such a sudden pivot to cutting rates and risking a resurgence of inflation.
0: Yeah, when it first happened, that was one of my guesses or, or you know, questions. Is there something much right. worse out there? But I, I also add that repo problems in September 2019. Uh, I called it the biggest financial story of my lifetime that no one's talking about. I mean, because it was <laughs> right. such a systemic problem. You know, I mean, yeah. it, the system was breaking. So it'd be fascinating to see. And And there's lots of. Other examples, as we went through from that time, I mean, I talk regularly about the bailout needed for the um, UK pension system when the central bank there had to jump in and buy those bonds. We know uh, Silicon Valley Bank, again, the same kind of problems on the books. Japan, I I spent a lot of time looking at Japan and I shake my head every time I look at it, you know, but it's, (laughs) it's those internal financial things that don't usually make the headlines, you know, whether... You know of the, at least the mainstream press uh, I'm still interested though I mean I, I was thinking this the other day. I can't imagine the retracement would happen if that interest rate scenario of lower interest rates doesn't manifest in a somewhat similar time frame if for some reason there's a surprise because I mean look at the size of the bets made on that very thing.
1: no, no, you're absolutely right it's actually this is uh, kind of a, a, a topic I'm writing about in this weekend's newsletter. Um, which is, you know, there is this disconnect between six rate cuts by the market, three rate cuts by the Fed. And if you're going to have to reconnect those two, either the Fed's going to have to become much more aggressive about cutting rates, which means something has gone wrong in the markets financially, economically, etc., which isn't good for stock prices, or stocks are going to get disappointed by not getting enough rate cuts, and you're going to get a correction because of that as well. So, There's really kind of a painful conclusion that is going to basically converge potentially sometime over the next three to six months. Um, Having another five or 10 percent correction this year in the markets wouldn't be surprising as markets try to reconcile uh, this difference in economic outlooks. If the market gets into recessionary, you know, it starts to actually look at a recession, which doesn't look, you know, that high of a probability at the moment because we have a tremendous amount of deficit spending going on. Um, the supporting economic growth. But if the economy happens to really start tipping over into a recession or we get a bigger contraction in employment than expected, uh, that could manifest itself into a much bigger contraction to the markets. And of course, uh, a much more aggressive Fed
0: easing program at that point. It's interesting with some economists I know and respect, uh, I've been warning them for, for about three, like since that repo problem in September 2019, that they're not looking at the right stuff. I mean, if they're making further forecasts about what's going to happen, because uh, the credit markets are where the action is. The credit markets where the problems are in Japan and, and UK, as I said, going to be in the you know, European Union, clearly across many of the emerging markets. You know, it's actually what's the credit market saying that doesn't necessarily have to echo what the economy and I think simply put it's if I start getting worried, I'm going to get my money paid back or I'm going to get my money paid back. When I lend to government in much devalued purchasing power currency, I'm not even looking at the economy at that point. You know, I, am I'm, right. I'm worried about something much more, uh, same, uh, straightforward. Am I getting my money back and what will it buy when I do?
1: No, that that's, that's, uh, that's a very true statement. And, uh, and you try to use economics to manage a portfolio. is doesn't really work out well over time because economics are very lagging. They take a long time to manifest. And you know, if you're trying to invest money and manage risk and portfolios, the things you want to pay attention to are things that are much more real time. Credit markets are very real time. To your point, if there is a, you know, if there is a concern about repayment of principal, you're going to start seeing credit spreads widen out very quickly. That's a surefire sign that something's going wrong in the mm-hmm. financial system, and you want to get money out, to, you know, into, into a form of safety. So, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. You know, you know, it's great to talk about economics, but when it comes down to managing your portfolio, pay attention to things that are directly related to systemic risk, credit spreads, um, you know, volatility. Those type of things are a much better uh, way to understand what's happening in the markets and how that reflects to risk in your portfolio.
0: One of the other things you've been writing about is the sentiment aspect in terms of people are clearly paying more for the same performance or anticipated performance. I mean, we call that price earnings ratios, but that's what they're doing. They're saying, hey, if you're going to still do that, I'll pay actually a little bit more for that. And that's I guess that's a risk in the market, or at least that's something to keep a close eye on because if sentiment changes, you know, that could be the first to go.
1: Yeah, no, look, and, and this has been, a, this has really kind of been a, a, a problem now, really, since 2009. Um, you know, in 2009, we changed the world financially. Um, you know, it's hard to understand just how much money has been thrown at, the, and I'm just talking about the U.S. Forget Canada, forget every other country in the world. I'm just talking about the U.S., People don't understand how much money has been thrown at bailing out and supporting and sustaining the economic and financial system in the U.S. It's forty three trillion dollars. We're a twenty two trillion dollar economy. We've spent forty three trillion just since 2009 trying to support everything from the, the banking sector to the financial markets to Uh, you know, the housing market, you name it. And that was all just to sustain 2% economic growth. It was a very, very poor return on investment. We've been spending five to five and a half dollars for every dollar's worth of economic growth over the course of the last 13 years. That's not sustainable. But what it did was it lofted asset prices at a four percentage increase over the historical average. So going back to nineteen hundred. From 1900 to 2008, the average growth in the S&P was about 8%. That's including inflation and dividends, the whole nine yards. Since 2009, we've had almost a 12% rate of annualized return. So we increased the annualized rate of return by four full percentage points over that course of that 13-year period by injecting $43 trillion into into the system. The question investors have, of course, now now 12% growth is exceedingly far beyond what the economy can actually generate so we're talking about economic growth from earnings and and profits in in the country so you're growing the markets at a a high much higher clip than what the the fundamental value of companies actually are and so you have to ask yourself going forward how on earth are we going to sustain those types of returns in an environment that's growing at two percent with two percent inflation which is what the fed wants You can't grow earnings to support that rate of return. So even a return back to normal average rates of return are going to seem very disappointing from what we've lived in over the past 10 years. Uh, Let's talk about
0: the U.S. debt for a second, just uh, just because it crossed the $34 trillion mark you know which is a number and yeah exactly it's a number of both things actually it's a number so big it's numbing and people don't know but your your response is the is the one that we've been observing here for a while that you know i may sit there and go uh, there's going to be consequences to the deficit i think we should discuss what they will be you know it's not some sort of automatic oh the economy is going to crash or the world's going to come to an end you know i'm more in that camp that says well You know, Christine Lagarde of the European Central Bank said it a couple of years ago. She says, we can't go bankrupt here because we're just going to print the money we owe to people. And clearly there's been a lot of money creation going going on, as you say, with the kind of numbers you were just alluding to. And I'm just thinking of, first of all, do you think it's significant? And what is the significance when, I mean, what is it, two and a half trillion dollars added to the U.S. federal deficit since the deal on the debt ceiling in June last year?
1: Yeah, you know, it, it's, it's a shame, you know, first of all, just, you know, from a political kind of commentary standpoint, it's a shame that we don't have a, a group of politicians who are charged with managing the economy of the United States for 330 million people Yeah, that yeah. we don't have a set of And really, honestly, this goes for every country in the world. It's not just the U.S., but you know, this has become a very elite club of people that only look out for themselves rather than the welfare of, of the total economy, and it, it's a very sad statement to make because this is not what our founding fathers intended, and it's really not the way that that you know governments around the world were ever intended to operate. You know, at the at really kind of the, the behest of themselves rather than for the benefit of the global good, and you know. But, you know, when you start talking about the amount of the debt, right, 34 trillion, it's a it's a mind boggling number. But we have to look, you know, you can look at Japan. Um, Japan's running a 210, 220 percent debt to GDP ratio. We're about 120 percent of debt to GDP right now. So, you know, the, the easy answer is like, oh, we got lots of room to go but the important thing to understand is is that the more debt you have look there, just because we have 34 trillion in debt doesn't mean armageddon's going to happen tomorrow doesn't mean look I see all these articles people are like oh the dollarization of america and you know the the economy's going to collapse you better have your bunker ready um, better own gold cuz that's you know that's the only thing that's going to matter and and look you know there's there's no evidence that we are to that point just yet but what debt does mean and the more debt you have the lower your rate of economic growth is going to be, the lower your economic prosperity is going to be. And this is why when you take a look at the at the division that's going on in America right now. And, you know, America is clearly one of the great capitalist experiments in, in all of human history. And the, the, what's going on in the economy right now is the ultimate end game of capitalism where capitalism is no longer for the benefit of, of growing economic prosperity for all, but only for a few. And you're now seeing that wealth gap between the, the rich and the poor expand to the point that you're now getting this massive division of views within the economy. And that's all a function of the debt. Ultimately, it's the debt because you, it's not just government debt we're talking about. Yeah. It's also student loan debt. It's credit card debt. It's it's, it's mortgage debt. It's all this debt. Because, and let me give you a couple of just numbers to bring this home very quickly. In the 1960s and 70s, the economy in the U.S. grew at about 8% on average. The average household debt to net worth was about 60% of debt to net worth. And the majority of that debt was the house, right? Today, the average debt to net worth is 150 to 160%. And that's on average. That includes the people at the top of the income stream that have very little debt. So you really kind of get down to the bottom 80 their, their percent. Their debt to net worth ratios are far worse. But that's the problem, right? We've, just, we've, we've grown an economy on debt, which is not sustainable. And we need to come back to the point of growing an economy and reducing that debt so that we have more productive dollars going into productive investments, not going into debt service. Uh, well, uh, if, if you're worried about the
0: U.S., you should see the Canadian numbers, you know, productivity yeah. per capita. Uh, I think the U.S. is at about 28,000. We're at 15,000, you know, uh, translating using the currency. Uh, but, but, of course, we've been stagnating much longer. OECD says Canada is going to be the worst performing on a GDP, real GDP per capita this decade. And then they said, if that's not enough, hasn't got your attention, let's do the next three decades. You know, yeah. uh, that's hardly. A, but it's exactly the same problem, as you describe, uh, w- which is, a, you know, I, I keep thinking, is it just my recency bias that says that this is a very difficult, risky time to invest? I'm thinking geopolitically, at least uh, I, I don't feel people still seem to appreciate when I look at the optimism, for example, in the markets, appreciate the geopolitical risk. You know, they're aware of Ukraine, of course, they're aware of what's going on uh you know, with the Hamas attack on Israel, but also Taiwan is still, you know, bubbling over there. So I started going, my gosh, there's all of that risk. And oh, my gosh, it's escalating, actually. And if, if one is following the news, it's actually escalating. Oh, my gosh, we do have some consequences for that debt buildup, whether, it, as they say, it turns uh, the purchasing power, of the currency goes down, uh, what have you. The The list is a long one, but I don't know if it's just me sitting here today going, that seems unusual or... That's just, uh, I, I've just forgotten history.
1: No, you haven't forgotten history. You know, the, the, the problem is really twofold. One, going back to what I said earlier, we keep electing individuals into office that keep doing the very same things. And, you know, that's the old definition of insanity, right? Yep. Um, you know, I keep hoping that at some point, voters around the world are going to wake up and go, I've had enough. I want something different. And we're going to try something different. But that all, and see, and, and remember, all these political conflicts that we have around the geopolitical conflicts, whether it's Israel or, or Ukraine or whatever, all derived from those that are running the countries at the top. It's not the citizens that are causing yeah. these problems, right? It's the government. So and, and, and at the end of the day, it's about money, my friend. You know, it's about spending. And, 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 you know, the reason that our government likes war is because we make a lot of money at it, because everybody wants our, you know, wants the weapons. Um, and that's a very kind of callous thing to say, but it's just kind of a function of where we are. So when you start looking at geopolitical risk, we all have a very short recency bias now in, in the markets. Nobody looks at the long-term consequences of these actions. They don't look at the long-term outcomes of what would happen if China took over Taiwan yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, tomorrow. What would that mean for the global marketplace? What would that mean for my my place within the world if, if something like that would occur? We so we don't look that far away. All we look at is is oh the market went up yesterday. Oh, I'll better be in the market because I don't want to miss out. And by the way, we're talking about a very small percentage of people that actually invest in the financial markets, right? You you take a look at, at the, the statistics in America. About eighty percent of Americans have less than five hundred dollars right. in the bank. Yeah. Their average four hundred one k balance is about forty eight to fifty thousand dollars. It's less than one year's worth of income they're not invested in financial markets they're just trying to scrape together enough money to get by so we're really talking about the investing class we're talking about the top 10 percent of income earners which is becoming a much more narrow bracket you know as as the years kind of go on here well i i'm proud
0: to say on money talks right from the get-go of the uh the lockdowns and the pandemic I asked questions about, well, what do you think the impact's going to be on lower income? It was so obvious that the policies that were getting adopted would only favor those with assets. Number one, real estate, which was a broader scale. And as you say the small percentage in stocks. Uh, and it just seems still to this moment, we continue to ignore, as you said, you know, the number of people. Well, in the States, the numbers are just as big about who don't have a bank account or anything meaningful. They can't meet even one month's worth of expenses. Lots of ways to describe that. Um, and I just think there's going to be massive social social repercussions, especially when yeah. governments are putting in policies that do raise prices, you know, yeah. uh,
1: that but,
0: we've but, all experienced. But
1: I, yeah. But, Mike, that's what I'm talking about. That, yeah. That's exactly what I was saying earlier is that you look at all the under, Look, you know, you you know, we want to talk about unrest in the United States. Right. We got lots of problems, lots of division. It's not. It's not really the talking points that you hear in the media that's the problem. Those are things that people are latching onto. It's like, yeah, that's why I'm upset is because of this. Mm-hmm. But it's it's this underlying, you know, di- disappointment more than anything else. But you know, when you're just when you're faced with the kind of this crushing pressure of higher prices and lower wages, not not being able to take care of your family, you know, somebody gives you a piece of red meat says, yeah, this is the reason why this person over yeah. here, or this group over here. It's like yeah, and they latch onto that because that's the only way they know how to express their anger, right? And and we see a lot of that. But when you dig down into the root cause of all this, this has been really something growing since two thousand and nine, since the financial yep. crisis was when this really started to root. And you had this division of wealth within the country. Had, you know we had the remember the uh, you know we had the ninety nine percent back in uh, two thousand and nine. They were camping out on Wall Street. Yep. And it's been, it's, been going, it's been going ever since. And, and, you know, from the cost of health care to the cost of child care to all this other stuff, you know, we're not helping those people. And, and to your point, right, we did all these handouts in 2020. We sent people checks. We, we gave them childcare benefits. We did all this type of stuff. And I said, that's a terrible idea because all it's going to do is create inflation, which is exactly what happened. And then when the money ran out. Now the prices are still up. The prices don't come down when you create artificial inflation. They don't go back to where they were. The prices are still there, but they're out of money. And now the situation's even worse. And that's why the anger just keeps growing. And they just try to find people they can, can, can loft it onto. Uh, let, let's finish with this. Um,
0: and that's just, okay, how do people going forward, what are you sort of broadly suggesting? Obviously, you don't know everyone listening's you know, circumstances, but sort of broad themes. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm very big about protecting our purchasing power because I just think uh, I went to the bank uh, a week or so ago. And was getting some Christmas money. And it just seemed absurd the way they just kept on forking over like $20 bills. It's just pieces of paper. And it just, right. of course, that's one of my themes. But I, I look at that going, this is just nonsense. You know, or the U.S. now debating, well, let's give another $50 billion to Ukraine as if they had the money. No, they just have yeah. the ability okay. to create it. So yeah, exactly. I am worried that way for individuals, as you say, especially, I mean, we're, we're drilling down to the 75% of the public now you know, who is having trouble with this.
1: No, it's true. Look, and, and, here, and here, now, here's the problem with all this, right? We had this really great conversation talking about the ills of America and all these economic consequences. And now you want to ask me a question about, you know, what should you do with your money to protect against inflation? Well, you got it. And, and, the, the, and this is where the dichotomy comes in. You know, there's, there's only a few ways to outpace the rate of inflation. You know, honestly, gold didn't do it last year. Gold, mm-hmm. gold traded, it did okay. Right. But it, it didn't it didn't really and, and really going back to 2020 when we started having this big spike in inflation, gold didn't really offset your inflation risk to any great degree. The only thing that really offsets your inflation risk to to any sustainable degree, unfortunately, was stocks. But you go, but Lance, stocks are all overvalued. Yeah, they are. But in, in in a period like we're in now that there are very few alternatives For making sure that your savings are outpacing the rate of inflation over time and so we've got to take advantage of those you know yields on on 10-year treasury bonds they were over five percent last year they're down to four now so that trade is starting to go away um, in terms of being able just to lock in money at a higher rate we're starting to lose that ability so we're starting to get forced back in and again this is also where the fed is we're starting to get forced back into the stock market as the only real ability to offset or outpace the rate of inflation. Now, again, looking out of the course of the next twelve months, Mike, this is where it gets difficult. This this yeah. may be the year that gold does fantastic, right? I don't know. I can't predict that far ahead. Uh, you know, we can just make some guesses, but you know, this may be the year that commodities. You know, commodities had a real commodities had a negative return last year uh, as a basket, mm-hmm. so they they didn't help you offset inflation. But maybe this year's the year that. Commodities are the place to be. It's too soon in the year to make that call just yet um, because we're just now going through rebalancing. We're doing tax uh, tax gain selling right now. But over the course of the next month or so, and and maybe we can revisit, you know, at the beginning of next quarter. But I think over the over the course of the next month or so, we will start to see the trends for this year begin to emerge. Where's the dollar headed? Where interest rates actually headed? where's inflation really headed or or is inflation really heading to 2% or has the fed created a, a potential for inflation to start rising again because of all this exuberance in the financial markets, people feel better. They go out and spend more money that creates inflation, you know, Those are be the things that are going to start to manifest themselves over the next couple of months.
0: Well, it leads beautifully to me say we will visit again in the near future to do that. But they can also visit with you every day. Realinvestmentadvisors.com. You do a a blog. You've got a newsletter people can access. So as this develops, because I couldn't agree more that uh, I'm part, you know, well know the World Outlook Conference. Uh, You know, it starts February 2nd and 3rd. Why? Because we get some of this data to make it a little more certain at that point. You know, if certainty may be the wrong word, but more information. But they can go to realinvestmentadvisors.com every day and then look forward to your next appearance on Money Talks, as I will. Lance, thanks for finding time and a happy new year.
1: My pleasure. Thank you so much.
0: Time now for the quote of the week. It's incredible. In just, what, nine days' time, it's January 15th, Republicans in Iowa are going to officially kick off the 2024 presidential campaign season. They'll be the first to cast their votes in support of a presidential candidate when they attend, I think it's something like 1,600 public gatherings known as caucuses across 99 counties in the state. What's different this year, though, is that the frontrunner, For the Republicans, former President Donald Trump has already been taken off the ballot in Colorado and Maine. Obviously, that's controversial, but the Democrats are not without warts of their own with the revelations regarding President Joe Biden's participation, if in name only with his son, Hunter Bryden's, highly questionable foreign business dealings. You know, of course, politics is going to play a huge role in all of this leading up to the 2024 election, which brings me to my quote of the week. By author and senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, Lance Morrow, who states The case for disqualifying both the flawed and tainted Mr. Trump and his flawed and tainted opponents on the left, including Mr. Biden, is strong. In a perfect world, that's what would happen. But in such a bind as this, in the depressing equilibrium of negatives, a decision for one side or the other requires the Supreme Court to disenfranchise half of the country. The same course is to disqualify neither. Let the people vote on it and let all sides hope that by 2028, the country will have brought forth a new generation offering a better choice of leaders and lets us say more grown-up ideas. Well, let me repeat, by the way, one of the Money Talks forecasts we have made consistently since 2020 is that neither side is going to accept the outcome of the presidential election. That's what I think is important for Canadians. Uh, any move to disqualify a candidate Uh, will add tons of ammunition to the other side. And it will be to the detriment of the long-term stability of the political system in the United States. I'm getting a lot of questions about uh, the World Outlook Conference, but specifically the VIP pass, because I made a comment that there's something like 48 of them left, which is true. It might be actually less by the time uh, you see this. But I just want to remind you the VIP pass is really terrific. I mean, first of all, you get reserved seating at the front of the auditorium, but more than that, you get breakfast uh, you know, on the Saturday morning with Joseph Schachter. Of course, they're doing the energy market breakfast there. At lunch, you get lunch with Ryan Irvine. He'll be hosting, talking with a lot of small cap companies and bringing that to you. And finally, Here's something that the the VIPs are also gonna get access to an exclusive event in May. We're gonna do a a Zoom event where I'm gonna host with some of our speakers to give you an update, you know, three months post or whatever, four months post. So you get an update where we stand with the markets at that point. That alone, by the way, is worth a lot more than the VIP pass. I'm sort of shocked that we're actually doing it, but I think it's worth your while the way these markets are moving the speed. By that point, of course, some of the interest rate scenario will have been played out in full. So I just uh, invite you to take advantage of it because, you know, it's only what something like $120 more For your vip pass than it is for the regular admission and we certainly hope you come you take advantage of it but i just wanted to bring that to your attention after i got so many people asking is there really only 48 left well yeah so get on it go to mikesmoneytalks.ca mikesmoneytalks.ca just click on the events button presto there you go but bottom line is no matter how you come i look forward to seeing you there I want to bring Mike Levy in right now. Uh, Mike, it's interesting, eh, that the, uh, well, maybe not a surprise, though. I mean, the same debate that we ended the year with starts the year, and that is how weak is the economy going to get? And that, of course, will allow how deep any rate cuts will get. And again, something that we've been talking about, there is a real disparity between what's going on in the U.S. and what's going on in Canada, although I don't think either are particularly rosy. But yeah, I mean, the US is certainly doing much better than Canadian in so many different metrics economically. And you
2: know what, this is what we do, Mike,
0: we compare. So the numbers might not be numbers
2: that you get all excited about, but you look at them relatively, U.S. and Canada, and Canada makes me a little nauseous and the U.S. makes me a little bit envious. But let's just take a quick look. Um, the U.S. job growth, um, there more jobs, lower unemployment than expected – 216,000 new jobs, only 170,000 expected. Unemployment rate, and catch this, Mike, 3.7%. They expected 3.8%. 3. 3.7%, 3. as we've talked about for years, it's basically there is no unemployment. Uh, you uh, juxtapose that to Canada. I, I'll wait for this number because this is an exciting number. We created a whole 100 new jobs recorded. In November, 100 new jobs and our um, jobs rate are steady at unemployment rate at five point eight percent. That's a big difference. And when you take a look at the numbers, the U.S. economy is definitively stronger than the Canadian economy.
0: Yeah, and those numbers we got today out of the U.S. suggest that they're going to have to probably, you know, people who thought they might get a rage, uh, w- sorry, a rate decline as early as March, probably out the window, they're still stronger. Their wage growth is, real wage growth is still stronger in that way. Uh, yet, as you say, when you come to Canada, but I mean, it's nothing new in Canada. My gosh, we've basically been flatlining. Really, since uh, you know the second quarter, when you take the third quarter was actual contraction. That's what the estimates are in Canada of the of the overall economy. So we've kind of been flatlining. So yeah, there is a discrepancy that's that's showing up. Also in terms of household debt, that's a big discrepancy when you look across the border compared to us. I mean, the the list is a long one, and there is a tendency to sort of merge the two. Like as we talked about a few weeks ago, Jerome Powell opens his mouth, and a lot of people sort of. Uh, took that into Canada and it wasn't the case. Tiff Macklin to his credit uh, uh, has not talked the same game as Jerome Powell. I mean, it's just that they are different situations Is our whole point here.
2: Well, they sure are. And I was just reading and I know you were um, economist, David Rosenberg. And, Just a couple of lines, and I I, I get shivers, and I I mean, not good ones when I read what he has to say, but he says, Canada, instead of promoting productivity and capital investment, Canadian government for years, if not decades, has pursued policies aimed at spurring a housing and credit bubble of epic proportions, and now it's time to pay the piper. Household debt, Mike, relative to disposable income, 172% in Canada. And that's about 30 percentage points higher than the epic credit bubble uh, peak in 2006, 2007. And I I, I think you take a look at those numbers and um, also one other, nearly 15% of every after-tax dollar of Canadians is being drained from households to service our mountain of debt. So we, it is really a tale of two countries.
0: Yeah. They're really worried about the, the debt drag individually collectively on overall economic growth. Uh, let me just make you a little more depressed, Mike, than the numbers you've oh, okay. given me. Oh yeah. Just keep in mind the number, you know, we talk about uh, debt to uh, you know, individual debt per capita and it's 172% of disposable income it's way worse than that. Why? Because a third of Canadians have no debt. So that's not spread out over 40 million. It's spread out over whatever that math would be, something like 26 million. So some people, and that's not a surprise, have a much worse debt profile. That's who we're worried about. You know. So yeah, and it is a concern. And uh, again, to me though, that would tell the Bank of Canada lower rates for goodness sakes. Do you know what I mean? Like, especially when mortgage interest it is so much of the calculation for what inflation's at today. You know, so it would, tell, it would put pressure on the Bank of Canada to actually lower rates. You know, our, our economy isn't strong. It's flatlining. Individuals have debt problems. Every economist agrees that's going to impact consumer spending going forward in 224, 225. To me, that's a recipe. Go ahead. Lower them, for goodness sakes. But then, and this goes
2: back to our conversations the last couple of weeks, Mike, you lower rates in the U.S. doesn't, you know what happens to the Canadian dollar, you know what happens to our purchasing power and how much that we import, and all that does is pile on and exacerbate the problem that we're just talking about, there is a significant, significant, significant problem in Canada. Uh, A lot of it politically caused, Mike, and we can't get away from that. I'm not going to go after parties or provinces or which politics are better better or worse, but it is significant,
0: and the outlook is to get worse, not better, at the current time. Yeah, that's the consensus, the Canadian economists. The only debate is, are we in recession or are we just about to enter one? Is it going to get worse? All of that kind of stuff. But that's the backdrop. And again, the formula is straightforward. The, this is terrible. The worse the economy, the bigger the rate cut can be because we've got a lot of people waiting for the rate cut. But the worse the economy gets, the more opportunity the Bank of Canada does to lower it. So, yeah.
2: yeah you don't Happy know what New Year. Yeah yeah I'm just uh, sitting here our 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 listeners can't see me I'm just waving the banner like like yeah. the banner with the white flag
0: on it saying we give up <laughs> There you go Mike go out and have a terrific week and thank you for being even more depressing than I am Oh just bring me on any week for that have a good week Mike Time now for the shocking stat of the week. (laughs) I'm thinking the context. Given the Canadian government is one giant nonprofit organization, I always thought it was more than strange to put the label non-profit as a badge of honor, as if it was unusual, first of all. Of course, for many Canadians, the word profit is a dirty word, as if doing business with those companies' organization is not completely voluntary for consumers, but leave that aside, and as if having an economy full of unprofitable businesses would be more desirable. I'm not sure what the words "nonprofit" hold for people, but if you're equating it with people toiling away on behalf of the greater good for low wages, we just got an analysis by the Canadian press of the compensation in recognized charities in environment, conservation, and animal protection sectors. It's reported in the Toronto Star, and it finds, well, it's not always quite the case that they're on the poverty row, that's for sure, especially some of the biggest names in the sector. The CP analysis of federal filings identified 17 charities whose top executives' annual compensation in 2022 and 23 is in the 200 dollars to $250,000 range. I mean, these are some of the most recognizable nonprofits in these sectors. But keep in mind, they do not represent the majority of them. No, they represent about 1% of the 864 registered charities in this uh, the sector. I mean, 14% have no employee earning over 40000 Additional 15%, the top salary is 80000 59% have only volunteers. But I think it's safe to say that some of the salaries are going to shock you. For example, in 2023, Ducks Unlimited had two people earning over $350,000. Three others received between 250000 and 300000 And four received compensation between 200000 and 250000 Wow. And as the Toronto Star points out, tax has contributed $27 million to Ducks Unlimited for the year that just ended in March 2023, while a quarter of its $140 million in revenue came from donations. Let's go to the David Suzuki Foundation. The highest paid manager received between 250 and $300,000 in compensation uh, for the year ending in uh, August 31st, 2022. Well, there are three others who are making 200 to 250000 My bet is those salaries are up now. World Wildlife Canada Fund with 110 employees, top executive compensation between 250000 and 300000 last year. Two others received 200 and 250000 And 80% of its revenues come from donations. Now, I'm not suggesting what the compensation should be. I think that'll surprise though. That's up to the board of directors to decide, and then up to the public, donors, taxpayers, to decide if it's appropriate. As the star points out, in these instances of high pay, They're in the same category as some provincial premiers, who I think it's safe to say have a larger organization under management and tens of thousands of more employees. But as I say, shining light on all this is very important. When you make a charitable donation, you can check all of these things out. I think it's a good idea i got to get Ozzy in here right now to kick off 2024. Ozzy, i got to go back to a story, though, that you and I had been talking about in 2023. And that's in order to meet this uh, housing demand caused by, you know, the huge population boom, uh, then they're going to have to make some changes. And they have been making changes, as we alluded to. And one of my big messages was pay attention right across the country. Because if somebody does something, you can bet another government's having a look. And boy, that big story out of British Columbia now into uh, it's happening in Alberta, which is really the densification of neighborhoods, really a change in character of neighborhoods from single family.
3: Yeah, in fact, Edmonton's new zoning bylaw takes effect on January the one already. And Mike, it's not just a decision in principle. I mean, you can now put a row house, a townhouse, even a small apartment building, legally into a residential area i mean that is an eye-opener and it's funny we had actually a listener to the show uh, write uh, write me and he said uh, i'm going to the money talk world outdoor conference well that that's a good thing good decision to start with but he says i live in edmonton he mentions the suburb nice area i'm very concerned about the new bylaw and the ability to build a small apartment building right next door i'm looking at moving into school school schools growth. what do you think right so people are concerned I mean, I'm in my cul-de-sac with my kids running around, and I came here for a reason. It took me years to be here, and now I've got a house paid off, and you put an apartment building next door. Yeah,
0: and I'm worried that people are only going to pay attention once it happens to their neighborhood. I mean, that's something else. We can talk about that later, but, you know, then they'll be disappointed. Like so many other things, they were too busy or didn't pay attention or what have you, but I think changing the character of a neighborhood is going to have a profound impact on many, many people. Let's talk about the numbers, Owazi. We've got some preliminary numbers out there for December. Uh, What was your first, your overall take? Uh, You were looking, you know, Toronto had some numbers out there, and we've still got uh, Vancouver area, like the Fraser Valley. What what was your first impression of those numbers?
3: Well, in essence, uh, the numbers are better December 23 over 22 but lousy still if you measure it against 2021 and 2020. For instance, Vancouver up in December, for single families up 377 units, great. Last year, it was only 372, but in 2020, it was 1,032. On the condo side in Vancouver, we had 721 sales, slightly better than last year's 703. But in December 2021, Mike, it was 1,462, and in 2020, 1,476. So looking at a 10-year average back, the market is not hot by no means. It's better than in 2022. And you and I said that all 2022, when we measure ourselves against 2023, we look better. And we are, but reality is sales are nowhere near back.
0: It's going to be interesting, though, because the last time, I think it was March of, uh, you know, the dates start getting confused, but March 2022, or was it, no, it was March last year, March 223 when the rates froze and everybody assumed, okay, that's the peak in rates. And there was a big uptick, not just the spring uptick, but there was more. I think there was some pent up demands, people going, wiping their forehead, going, Whew, OK, well, that part's over. You know, and of yeah. course, then we did get two more rate increases after that and talk of rate increases. But now we're back in that same situation where, as I was talking to Lance uh, Roberts about it a few minutes ago, that, you know, the consensus is we're going to get a decline in rates. That's what the market's telling us there. I'm just wondering, we'll have to wait and see in January. Uh, February numbers. Will that be enough to sort of goose the market? Will the psychology yeah. be enough to push it forward?
3: It's starting now, Mike. You know, we get reports out of Victoria and Vancouver. Multiple offers are back. People are thinking uh, right after the Fed made the announcement that this day put, almost more people came out to the open houses. And it's the key word that you use there psychologically made us feel better, we think we are going to be okay, the renewals are okay. And you know what? We talked last week about whisper whisper rates. We now hear of mortgage rates under 5%. Yeah,
0: and that's a huge change, as as you've been chronicling on ozbuzz.ca now, since that big tip in the uh, five-year bond rate started to become very apparent and significant. You know, I guess it's like five weeks ago now or four weeks ago. Hey, let me just finish with this, though, and just a, a reminder and as i say it's a thing that has applicability across the country this happens to be in british columbia people got their assessment notices
3: yeah and you got to, if you don't get it call the assessment authority but the nice thing the authority has they have a great website it's bcassessment.ca bcassessment.ca and they have searchable databases and just remember whatever when you type in your, your address and you see the number there, that is as of July 1, 2023. So if you ever want to dispute that number, you have to get comparisons to that number. The neat thing is you can put anybody's address there, even Mike's, and find out how much his house is worth. <laughs> you can do the whole a property, a property in British Columbia. If you don't like your assessment, call them. They're not meanies. They want to solve it. The last thing they want is to go on appeal. They will do everything on the phone with you to listen to you. But if it doesn't affect, you only have until January 31st to actually launch an appeal.
0: Always a bizarre situation, Ozzy, because when people come to list their house, they love to hear the highest number possible, you know, yeah. <laughs> because yeah. they know a cousin who knew a guy who drove a, a hot car who sold his yeah. house, you know, for two million. Yeah. So, ergo, yeah. mine must be. But when it comes to assessments, it's the same person. Opposite, yeah. no, my 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 thing's a shack. You know, I couldn't yeah. get five bucks for it. <laughs> but anyways, it's, but your point is well taken. And across, as I say, when your assessment notice in, pay attention to it, take a look at it. If you've got a problem with it, do something. Don't just leave it on the back burner. You know, And it sounds like I'm speaking from uh, experience, Ozzy, doesn't it? uh, So let's say, don't leave it on the back burner. Take action. Ozzy, look, uh, let me just finish with this. Looking forward to hearing you at the World Outlook Conference. As we just said with Lance, and it was interesting, he felt this month, you know we start seeing a lot more about what trends are out there that uh, you know that uh, in a month's time we'll have a better idea for sure than coming out of this particular period now well you're going to share all sorts of insights maybe even got a couple of recommendations but you'll tell us the lowdown on the market and i want to be the one to say review what aussie's told us at the world outlook conference has been an exceptional track record i will be there as i have been every year taking notes because uh, I can make some money off it. Ozzy, uh, have a terrific New Year, as you know. Appreciate you being here with us. And go to ozbuzz.ca.
3: Thanks, Mike. And, yes, I, I am really looking forward to the conference myself. I just remember on this New Year thing now, an optimist stays up until midnight to see the New Year in. A pessimist stays up to make sure the old year leaves. Now, <laughs> now for myself, every New Year I have the same question. How did I get home? OzBuzz.ca.
0: Let's go live to the trading desk. Now I'm going to bring in Victor Adair. Hey, Vic, I want to throw something at you. Uh, You know, it's always an interesting week. We finish the year, people feeling a certain way, and I think it's all about feelings and sentiment and all that, but I want to go right to the gold market.
4: Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I mean, the gold market, I think, at the end of the year w- was very bullish. Sentiment yeah. was very bullish. Positioning was very bullish. Well, uh, And let me say this. You know, with the trading that I do, I am way more interested in sentiment and positioning than I am in anybody's forecast. And I don't mean disrespect to people who make forecasts. I, I, I look at them, and I kind of factor that into how that colors or creates sentiment. But anyway, at the end of the year, gold was very bullish in sentiment you can feel that everywhere and i also have a way of looking at the positioning and i could see that speculators that's both small and large speculators had on the largest aggregate bullish position that they would had on since just after the russians invaded ukraine so what that means to me kind of in the vernacular is that everybody who's bullish gold has already bought some gold now they can definitely buy more and prices can definitely go higher but i'll put that with something else and that is i'll watch to see how gold behaves
0: now that that's the condition it's in and what i saw was it was time for a change well and and the other thing i know you look at but we gave gold reasons to go up you know we've been giving it obviously you know when you look at uh you know, the, the the terrible situation in the Middle East right now and, you know, in Gaza, et cetera. And we've already got Ukraine going on. But this past week, we add on North Korea shelling South Korea, you know, with ammo coming down there. We've got other reasons. I think and I know that you've always talked about this. Hey, that was a good reason to go up. Hey, what? It didn't. And that was a signal to you.
4: You know, you go back to early October of this year and the Positioning by the speculators and the commercial accounts was basically flat. you know gold was at you know a couple of bucks away from making a new low for the year and then they had the Hamas attack over the weekend in Israel, and the price started to rally so since that period of time we 've seen this increasing and increasing bullish sentiment in gold and of course, the background by the way, just to stay with gold is that We've seen central bank buying like never before. That was one of the real big bullish factors. Anyway, we just got like a wall of all this bullish news. And then I'm looking at it. I'm saying, okay, it's in that condition. Now, I notice that we have some fresh news like the with the events in the Red Sea, Korea, as you just mentioned, a Hamas leader in Lebanon getting killed by an apparent Israeli attack. And, you know, gold doesn't go up. And Okay, so now I'm comfortable to take a short position. Risk management and all that sort of thing. But I'm just saying a
0: market that won't go up on bullish news is at risk of going down. I think that's a great point. Uh, The other thing that's kind of interesting when I look within the whole scope is that we saw that also with the stock market. We saw it with interest rates. I mean, it looks like the interest rate sentiment As you were saying, you were paying attention to, has also shifted to some degree at least. We'll see how, to what degree, but to some degree it's shifted.
4: Yeah, for sure. I mean, we go back to, say, August, September, and October, the market sentiment was basically driven by the Fed's going to be higher for longer. Oh, dear. You know, we don't like that. So stocks were going down. Bond yields were going up. We got the 16-year high on bond yields. And, of course, those two markets fed on each other. And at the same time, the U.S. dollar was bid. You know, when I say it's all one market, I mean, it really is. You know, sentiment hits, and the the markets react kind of like as you might expect. Then we had that pivot at the end of October. And all of a sudden, the market goes, oh, my gosh. (laughs) <laughs> you know, the Fed's going to cut. Gee whiz, you'll get me in. And, and through the months of November and December, the stock market roared up. The Dow was up 5,000 points, Mike, you know. You think people are bullish? Yeah, of course they are. And bonds, you know, the uh, yields fell very sharply. The U.S. dollar was a dog. And we got to the end of the year and people were so bullish. I think the expectation was, just wait till we open the gates on the new year. This market's going to rip higher. Well, it did.
0: <laughs> well, and by the way, this isn't a, you know, you're, you're talking trading, you're a trader, you know, you can get in this week, go out tomorrow, all of that kind of stuff, the context. But I'm going to talk a little longer term here. Now, this is an interesting dilemma. Uh, I hurt myself by patting myself on the back on the strength of the US dollar. That my point being, my feeling is that the dollar couldn't have some, uh, not a trader's move, I'm talking a real fundamental shift out of the dollar as long as there was geopolitical risk. And uh, what am I watching? I'm watching exactly that. Those same geopolitical tensions that we just alluded to, I think, helped move capital into the U.S., you know, and I still think that's for me. Now, I don't know if I'm just talking my own book, though, when I look at that. That's the that's the interesting thing. Am I just looking for confirmation uh, of that opinion? So that, that's always a challenge for me.
4: Well, of course, we have a confirmation bias, you know we like people who agree with us and that kind of thing uh, and you just mentioned timing how many times have we talked about yeah. trying to keep the the analysis time frame in sync with your trading time frame and, and and it's not it's not easy i i frequently i've got it seems my analysis time frame is a little longer than my trading time frame, and I think part of that is because i am just i'm just almost vicious about keeping my losses small trades not working it's gone you know, yeah so that that's why it looks like it's it, my trading time
0: frames so short but and that's yeah, why you're it, still in the business hold it sorry I, that's why you're still in no no but that's an important lesson for people outside Like you know risk management and as you said you know keeping your any losses short uh you know, to the exact amount that you already chose before you got in the trade. You have your trigger points. I'm just saying that's an important point. That's how you stay. That's longevity in the business.
4: Well, you know, I've said on your show before that I make money from trading, not because I've got a great crystal ball, but because I'm just really disciplined about risk management. I just, I don't like losing money. And I just say, this isn't working. I get out, get myself into something that is working,
0: and then try to be patient with that. Love that stuff, Victor. And that's why people should take advantage of victoradare.ca, victoradare.ca go, because Victor puts up the charts. He shows you what he's thinking, you know, what he's doing, you know, and what what is uh, sort of triggering what he's doing. I think it's just a great educational opportunity as well as fascinating. Vic, I want to wish you the best for the new year, of course, and I'm so pleased that you'll be with us uh, and also with us at the World Outlook Conference, uh, you know, Uh, It's interesting, You, you probably heard Lance Roberts earlier just say this first month is going to be pivotal to help get direction, you know, what's really going on. So the timing of the World Outlook Conference couldn't be better, but people can come listen to you, but also get a chance to meet, maybe ask a couple of personal questions of what they're doing, trade some stories with you. I think it's going to be terrific and I look forward to seeing you there.
4: Well, Mike, uh, Happy New Year to you, to all our listeners, and uh, definitely I'm looking forward to the World Outlook Conference. I think this will be my 36th World Outlook Conference.
0: (laughs) Well, it is for me too, but I started as an eight-year-old. That's the difference. (laughs) Of course you did. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, see you in February at the World Outlook Conference. Stay tuned for the Goofy. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. Well, I think anyone paying attention was well aware of Jeffrey Epstein's Lolita Express long before Virginia Giuffre went public with accusations that financier Jeffrey Epstein and his associate Ghislaine Maxwell, daughter of the media mogul Robert Maxwell, groomed and sex trafficked her as a minor, along with others on Epstein's private island in the Caribbean. Rumors of the rich and powerful engaging in, well, all sorts of things, orgies, drug use, other sexual activities abounded. But then after Virginia Uh, Jufri went public, Maxwell called it a total lie. Ms. Jufri responded by filing a suit in 2015. The case garnered a ton of attention. The suit eventually settled with the judge stating that Jufri, in quotes, was a victim of sustained underage sexual abuse between 2099 and 2002. In an interview with the BBC, Ms. Jufri said she was, in quotes, passed around like a platter of fruit to Epstein's powerful associates, stating, in quotes, She couldn't comprehend how, in the highest level of the government, powerful people were allowing this to happen. Not just allowing, but participating in it, end of quote. Well, since that time, the names on that list have been the focus of intense uh, attention. By October 25, the police had a growing list of girls with similar claims of sexual abuse, statements from Epstein's butler corroborating the claims, and a search warrant for his Palm Beach property. I'm not going to go further into the details. No need to. You can check them out so many places, including Netflix documentaries. I will note, though, that immediately, this is incredible, a money talks thing. Immediately after Epstein was arrested in July 219, Martin Armstrong wrote, in quotes, no high-profile case is ever allowed to go to trial where things the government does not want to be revealed could ever become public. He went on to say, in quotes, He will be killed one way or another. Epstein will hang himself, so they will say, or be killed by a fellow inmate who will take the blame for time off his bid. I mean, uh, his sentence. I mean, yes, he was found in his cell two weeks later. Nice call, Marty. I've never been able to forget that, though. But back to the goofy. Think about this. The pedophilia, the sex trafficking was known for years. For example, ABC News anchor Amy Robach said they had this story like years before it broke. She wanted to report it three years before it broke, but would not run it. That ABC wouldn't run it. She said she tried for three years to get on to no avail. P.S. She was fired for saying they had the story for three years. The point is, lots of people knew, and that is the point. And that's the Goofy Award. One justice system for the rich and powerful, and another for the rest of us. Pedophilia, sex trafficking, underage girls, and still, nothing was done. The rot, the immorality. The filth touched so many people. The accusations that cover it. And now we have a list of attendees on Epstein's Island. So far, I think it's 187. People who took Air Lolita. It's finally been released. We'll see the follow-up on all of this. That's all the time we have this week. I hope for 224, you make it a habit to go to uh, Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook, Mike's MoneyTalks.ca. get all the details. And of course, Money Talks tweets. And again, I guarantee you'll find stuff there that is pertinent to all of the issues that we are uh, facing right now that you're not seeing in the mainstream. Plus, of course, this isn't my first reminder, but I will tell you that there you go. On February 2nd and 3rd, we are holding the World Outlook Conference. Couldn't be a better timing. And I hope you join us there. Just go to mikesmoneytalks.ca, check it out. Join us at the world outlook conference. And of course, I think we still maybe have one or two dozen of the VIP tickets available. So take advantage of that for sure. It's great. I mean, you get all sorts of extras along with that and it sure doesn't cost much. So you want to take advantage of it. uh, Well worth your while, but I hope to see you there. In fact, I look forward to seeing you there. It'll be terrific. In the meantime, I hope you have a great week.